Madam Clerk. Oral questions by members? Leader of the Official Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It is estimated that 900,000 people in British Columbia do not have a family doctor today. And that number has actually increased by 200,000 people since 2017. Francis from Victoria says, and I quote, I haven't had a doctor for over two years. He retired at 92 years of age. As I am now in my 80s, I can no longer drive all over town to find a doctor, nor am I willing to stand in line for hours. We should be ashamed that we have allowed our healthcare system to fall to such depths." End quote. Over 12,000 people have signed a petition expressing their deep frustration and calling on this government to take expedited action. Camille Curry, who started that petition, is in the gallery today. And I would urge the Premier and the Minister to read the preamble that she provided. It is thoughtful, it is compelling, and it provides ideas and suggestions for the government to take immediate action. So today, will the Premier listen to 12,000 British Columbians and take the, and take the action necessary to ensure that families like Camille's, like Francis, and so many others have access to a family physician. Minister of Health. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And as the member knows, we have been taking action consistently since I became Minister of Health uh, to address the challenges of primary care which is to ensure that people have access to a family doctor or nurse practitioner or other health care providers in their community. Primary care is fundamentally important to us and I think to everybody in BC. And so the actions are specific. 27 new urgent and primary care centers, 54 new primary care networks, an increase in the number of family physicians, which is more than any other jurisdiction in Canada per capita and more than the increase in population new community health centers, and more than 800 new FTEs, meaning full-time jobs, assigned to those primary care networks and urgent and primary care centers. That is significant action, and more action needs to be taken. The issues that are raised are a struggle in the community, and the member will know this, and not just in Victoria, but across the province. That's why we continue to take those actions continue to add resources to primary care, and will continue to do so, reflecting exactly what the petition says, and exactly what the community says, which is that we need to improve primary care to ensure people have access to good health throughout their lives, and not just urgent care when they need it. Leader of the Official Opposition, supplementary. Well, what British Columbians want to hear today is how they are going to access a family physician. We know that longitudinal care helps better health outcomes. So we can add buildings, we can add supplies, we can add whatever. What we need to do is ensure that we are training, that we are looking at how we are going to have family physicians that meet the needs of British Columbians. When people don't have a family physician, the minister knows full well what happens. They're forced to go to a walk-in clinic, or in many cases, they end up being treated in emergency rooms, and he knows that that adds pressure to a system that is already under stress. 
Here's what Danielle from Kamloops had to say, and I quote, walk-in clinics are closing, and there are no alternatives to see a physician aside from sitting in an emergency room simply to get a referral or a type of regular screening done to prevent more serious illness, end quote. That's not an effective or efficient system, and neither does it provide the kind of care that families deserve. So again, to the minister, will he today explain to Danielle why she has to go to an emergency room to receive basic medical care? Minister of Health. Well, thank you, Honourable Speaker. And uh, since uh, 2017, uh, we've had more than a million visits to urgent and primary care centres in BC, providing team-based care to people in the community. That is a specific and compelling response to a, to a family practice shortfall and a primary care shortfall that existed prior to 2017, as the member will know. Uh, in 2013 uh, and just before then, a program called GP for Me was developed that was supposed to provide a primary care doctor for everybody. And we know that the number of people lacking a primary care doctor increased when that program was abandoned three years later. And so this is something governments have been working on for a long time. And it's not that GP for Me didn't have some successes, it did but that we are taking those steps. So urgent and primary care centers, a million visits. Team-based care is necessary now to provide longitudinal care to ensure that healthcare professionals work to the full extent of their skills. More than 800 FTE full-time equivalent staff joining 54 primary care networks is significant. And we have to continue to do that work. We don't do it just by, you know, by uh, making pronouncements. We do it in communities day by day, ensuring that people have access to the care we need. And most importantly, remember talked about family practice doctors, nurse practitioners are important too. George Abbott, when he was Minister of Health, started the process of nurse practitioners in BC. But when I became Minister of Health, we were 10th in Canada in their utilization. We increased the number of positions in post-secondary by 50%, and we are changing that now. Member for Surrey White Rock. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And the minister can stand up in this house and, and rattle off facts, but it's but it's clear. It's it, it's clear. If 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 they want to applaud people suffering, that's on this government. Right? It is clear that people are hurting, and they are hurting because of the doctor shortages we are seeing today. Things are getting worse, not better for people like Burl Andrews from Victoria. And I say, and I quote, personal health care used to be a reason people moved to BC. Now the lack of it is the reason that people leave. What does the Premier have to say to Burl and the thousands of others with, like her that don't have a family doctor? Why is this government continuing to go in the wrong direction when it is trying to provide doctors for British Columbians? Minister of Health. Uh, Honourable Speaker, you know, I, I say with great respect that nobody um, understands more than people with chronic disease the importance of primary care. I understand, and I understand the struggle people face, and it's particularly, it seems to me, at different points of our lives because sometimes our need for health care is constant throughout our lives. That's true of many people with chronic diseases, including people dealing 
with mental health and addiction issues. For others, it's more episodic. At different ports of our lives, we need a lot of care and then not for a long period of time. And that's the importance of primary care in our communities. You know, urgent and primary care centers, which we started in 2017, with more than a million visits, have played an, an important role in providing people care that they need, but they played an essential role during the pandemic when their doors remained open for people and provided excellent care throughout that period. Team-based care, doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and healthcare workers of all kinds. That is the response. In the 20th century, sole practice uh, family practitioners were the center of our primary care system. Now it's team-based care and the significant investment, urgent primary care centers, primary care networks, hundreds of new staff. If the member is suggesting he's against that, then he should say so. But that won't make things better. We are taking the actions that make things better in communities, but that there's more work to do and that primary care is important, I absolutely agree. Member for Study White Truck, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. So we'll say it again. 900,000 people do not have access to a family doctor in BC today. That number has increased over 200,000 since 2017. It's getting worse. It is not getting better. There are 2,600 doctors nearing retirement across this province. When these practices close, they are going to have enormous impacts on every single constituency. And it's people like Eleni from Nanaimo who says, and I quote, yesterday my wonderful family doctor, who is in his 70s, told me that he has to retire. And that so far he's not been able to find anyone to take over his practice. It's going to mean another 500 people without a family doctor, end quote. So the, can the Premier tell Eleni how she and her community are supposed to cope with losing their family doctor. Minister of Health. Well, Honourable Speaker, the member is making the case as to why these initiatives are absolutely necessary. We need uh, absolutely to attract family doc practice doctors for the future and nurse practitioners and nurses and health sciences professionals and community and healthcare workers supporting primary care. All of those things we need to do and to continue to recruit the next generation of healthcare workers. And how do you do that? You do that by doing it. And that's precisely what we're doing. A million visit surgeon in primary care centers, 54 primary care networks, more than 800 FTEs associated with that supporting primary care, an act activity that had not taken place before. Would it have? It would have been better. But had it not taken before, and that's important. Hopefully the member supports that. New co community health centers, because many new family practice doctors, the ones that are coming into the system, do not want to run businesses in the same way that current family practice doctors have for a long time. So we are moving from one path, which is fee-for-service, to many more alternative payment arrangements. These are all the ways we have to do. We have to, in other words, pursue a primary care plan that's coherent, such as the one we're, uh, we're pursuing, in order to provide the very care the member talks about. Because it is a moment, it is a moment, when your longtime family practice doctor decides they, they want to retire or have to retire. And that is a major moment. And so we need all of these actions and more to address this situation in the coming years. Leader of the third party. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. On March 16th, the Human Rights Commissioner sent a letter to the Provincial Health Officer indicating that the removal of provincial mask mandates 
places the greatest burden on the most vulnerable in British Columbia. The Premier has publicly stated that COVID-19 is an airborne virus. Masking is one of the least restrictive and most effective ways to mitigate the spread of this virus. The Commissioner said in her letter, quote, given the benefits of the mask mandate for thousands of marginalized people and the minimal impact on those who are asked to wear one, the balance at this time favors continuing the mask mandate. The letter states again, quote, lifting the mask mandate will do disproportionate harm to those who are already marginalized. My question, honorable speaker, is to the premier. In a pandemic, what does his government owe to the people and those who live with them who are medically vulnerable or immunocompromised? Minister of Health. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Uh, in uh, British Columbia, we have, uh, under the Public Health Act, an independent provincial health officer who works on, has worked and done, I think, extraordinary work in the pandemic balancing these very issues. Careful consideration is given to public health measures so that they, um, that they don't, as you say, interfere in people's behaviour more than is necessary by the requirements of the pandemic, and that is what uh, Dr. Henry has done consistently. The decisions uh, around the provincial uh, mass mandate, um, there was very significant notice given that those were under consideration. In fact, there was some criticism, even here, that we were taking too long to do that, but we, uh, uh, the provincial health officer gave that due consideration, including all of the questions that the member raises. I, I would say this, though that those who are clinically vulnerable have been more the focus of our efforts as a government and as the provincial health officer's efforts than anywhere else in Canada. No one has focused in terms of vaccination on the clinically vulnerable as effectively and as substantively as we, as we have. And we will continue to do that, continue to reflect the evidence and to continue to support public health in their, in their important decisions to balance these considerations. I very much appreciate uh, the letter from the Human Rights Commissioner, and it's, a, it's an important point of view to be expressed. But it's a point of view that is not new to the Provincial Health Office, the Provincial Health Officer, and uh, obviously, uh, obviously there's some disagreement there between one position and the other, but I can assure her that the focus on the clinically vulnerable will continue to be the, the principal focus of this government as we, can, as we continue to deal with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Leader of Third Party Supplemental. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And as the Human Rights Commissioner points out, the clinically vulnerable now are deprived of choices. Choices to use public transit, choices to send their children to school, choices to operate in public, because the risk to them is so much greater. The Premier has tasked his government with tackling systemic discrimination. It is in the mandate letter of the Minister of Health and yet our Human Rights Commissioner has said that the sudden removal of the mask mandate will have profound effects on vulnerable people. She says, quote, while many of us have the good fortune to simply move on with life, thousands of British Columbians will be left behind because of their age, disability, or other protected characteristics under BC's Human Rights Code. She continues, the mask mandate is not about eliminating risk. It is about sharing the burden, the risk burden across society rather than transferring it to a marginalized or medically vulnerable minority. 
My question, Honourable Speaker, is to the Premier. The Human Rights Commissioner is saying that decisions of this government are harming the most vulnerable people in our province. What is the Premier's response to the Human Rights Commissioner? Minister of Health. That we're doing just the opposite. And the evidence, the evidence over this pandemic demonstrates that. We have given focus from the beginning of the pandemic to those most clinically vulnerable. In long-term care, people who are clinically vulnerable in the community, it's been reflected in every aspect of the COVID-19 response, and it has because of the ethical values and approach of our provincial health office and our provincial health officer, and the ethical approach we've taken in British Columbia to these questions. And that will continue today to be the case. Decisions around uh, restrictions or guidelines are ones that are taken very seriously by the provincial health office officer and by our government. Uh, throughout the pandemic, that has been the case, and it continues to be the case. Of course, of course, it is a balance between the impact of measures on people, including all people in BC, of the measures themselves, and I, I would say the impact uh, of those measures on the pandemic. And that balance has been kept in BC, and the results can be seen in the outcomes we've seen in BC, particularly amongst those clinically vulnerable. I'm very proud of the work done by Dr. Henry in balancing these questions. I continue to be. And since the pandemic is not over by any stretch, we're going to continue to have to do that in the days and the weeks and the months to come. Member for Abbotsford West. Uh, thanks, Mr. Speaker. I listened uh, carefully to the exchange a few moments ago between the Health Minister and uh, my colleagues, and, and it strikes me that the, uh, the Minister is, is either overlooking or wanting to avoid uh, a key aspect to the challenge we're all confronted by. When we're facing a serious shortage of family physicians, it seems clear that the response needs to include at least two things. We need to train more family physicians here in British Columbia, uh, and we need to be more aggressive in recruiting internationally trained physicians. We're doing neither in British Columbia right now, Mr. Speaker. For hundreds and hundreds of British Columbia's brightest, best and brightest young people, this is what happens. They apply to medical school in British Columbia. They can't get in because there's not enough spaces. So they apply to internationally renowned medical schools, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they get trained. They get trained at those institutions. And then they want to come home and practice here in BC as doctors. And they can't because the process for having their credentials recognized is so incredibly complicated. It takes years and years and years. There are delays in writing the exams that they need to write. There are delays in entering the clinical assessment programs. And then if they get through that, the chances of them securing a residency in British Columbia is virtually nil. So they give up. And everyone in this house knows it and has a story to tell about how they just give up and go elsewhere. So my question to the minister is, when is the government actually going to take steps to address 
those key fundamental issues of training more doctors here in British Columbia and more aggressively and removing some of the bureaucratic obstacles to British Columbians who go abroad to get trained and want to come home and practice as doctors in BC. Minister of Health. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. And uh, as the member will know, I mean, he says nothing's happened. When I became Minister of Health, 6,218 uh, family practice doctors. Today, 6,852 is a significant increase, more than the increase in population growth. But the nature of family practice is changing, and we have to address significant issues around that. So for the member to get up and say, well, nothing's happening, when in fact we're seeing an increase in the number of family practice doctors is incorrect. The member also talks about uh, internationally trained doctors, and this is also true of internationally trained nurses, where the barriers of entry into uh, the Canadian healthcare system are difficult. We are taking steps, and you'll see those steps, uh, particularly with, with across health professions in the coming months. But this is not uh, as simple a question as the member will know, because the member was Minister of Health, and you'll know that uh, the, the very measures in place uh, to, accredit, to, to provide accreditation to doctors or are largely on the international theme, the same as they were under his government. But we need to take steps. That's one of the areas we need to take steps to address uh, the health professionals we're going to need to the future, and the government absolutely intends to do so. Abbasford West, supplemental. Uh, thanks, uh, Honourable Speaker. Well, with the greatest respect, I think the Minister is still avoiding uh, the fundamental issue here which is why aren't we training more doctors in British Columbia? The, the, the previous government, the one we hear a lot about from the other side, doubled the number of medical training facilities in British Columbia and created medical training spaces right across British Columbia. Now, maybe it wasn't enough. Maybe it wasn't enough because the decade prior to that, there had been no increase. And we're in jeopardy of repeating that scenario yet again. That's for the people that want to get trained in British Columbia. But there are so many stories. Debbie Atkins uh, contacted us from Parksville. She has a relative who is a pediatric specialist who's today working at a hospital in Switzerland. Internationally trained, internationally credentialed at a world-leading institution wanted to come to British Columbia. But it was made clear to him that it would be years before he would be able to put his talents to work in British Columbia. So the minister stands up, and I'm sure he will do so again in a moment, and say, oh, you're, you're, you're exaggerating. Why aren't we training more doctors in British Columbia when the need is so apparent? And why aren't we taking steps to eliminate the bureaucratic hurdles to taking world-leading physicians who want to come to British Columbia and letting them practice in British Columbia and easing the burden faced by now close to a million British Columbians who need a family physician. Minister of Health. Well, Honourable Speaker, uh, I, I think um, uh, the member will appreciate mm because I think the issue is so serious we won't get into a discussion of records. We were 10th in Canada in the number of nurses per capita when I became Minister of Health. We were 10th in Canada in the number of nurse practitioners in British Columbia when I became Minister of Health. We were below the average, or at the average, in terms of family practice doctors. And, uh, and we're seeing a change in, that, in, uh, in uh, circumstances, in the nature of family practice, and we're responding to that. And the way we're responding to that 
is a significant reform of, uh, of practice, which includes team-based care, the very doctors that the member talks about, those trained in British Columbia, those trained elsewhere. The young doctors coming into the system want a different kind and a different style of practice, and we are making significant changes in the system uh, to address that. And all of these measures, all of these opportunities for primary care and the expansion out to team-based care are important. We are going to need more family practice doctors in the future, and that will require training in British Columbia. Uh, it will require new medical school in British Columbia. It will require other steps, and it is absolutely our intention to do so. But for the member to, I think, suggest that action hasn't been taken, when such dramatic action has been taken to respond to this question, that have been building for a long time with no action is incorrect. We are taking that action and we'll continue to. Member for Caribou North. Oh, well, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Well, it is clear that we need to train more doctors. And as my colleague um, mentioned today, that um, the minister is avoiding the very specific questions that we have around the training purposes. So maybe we'll try a different minister. The NDP are not helping the situation because they're breaking their promise to build a medical school at SFU's campus in Surrey. Despite promising one in the last election, there has been absolutely no funding for a medical school in Surrey for two consecutive budgets. So, to the Minister of Advanced Education, why is she breaking the NDP's promise to fund a medical school when there is nearly a million people without a family doctor in the province of British Columbia. Minister of Health. Well, thank you, Honourable Speaker. And uh, the Minister of Advance and Education and I are, in fact, uh, putting the effort required into what will be a major project. But there's two sets of things the Minute member will understand. A new medical school is necessary to address the situation into the future. And I believe to provide some innovative new opportunities, and that's important. And that's something the government is hard at work on, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's the addressing the situation that has been described by herself and her colleagues now, which will involve a whole set of other measures. And the government is doing both. Member for Supplemental. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. The government continues to be all talk and no action on this. And I'll quote SFU's news release from last October. Over the next several months, it's hoped that the province will greenlight development of a business case for the proposed school, end quote. But here we are, months later, no business case, no budget, no hope to address the doctor shortage in British Columbia. So again, to the Minister of Advanced Education, please provide the House a clear timeline and dollar figure for a medical school in Surrey or is this just another broken promise? Of health. Well, with, great, with great respect, Honourable Speaker, uh, you know, across British Columbia, and this is particularly important in uh, rural and remote communities in the interior of the province, where these issues are even, I think, more keenly felt than they are in urban sectors, significant action has been taken and continues to be taken in many communities. For example, in Quinell, where there's an urgent and primary care center, where there wasn't before. And so there's two sets of things. There's two sets of things that we need to do. Uh, there's two sets of things. I agree. It's not just in rural and remote areas, but that's a priority 
uh, surely the leader of the opposition would agree with me that the addressing issues around uh, doctors in rural and remote communities is a high priority for us. It must be a high priority for her. So, so one does not exclude the other, is what uh, I'm saying to the leader of the opposition. Uh, the, the government is proceeding on numerous tracks. We are, ta we are taking steps to improve access to internationally trained health professionals to come into the EC market because in many areas, the, frankly, the system that's in place provides an impediment. It, provides a, it creates a financial disincentive, and this is particularly true of nurses. It provides a structural disincentive. There's two processes, a national and a provincial one in that case, and why we need to take those actions. With respect to the SFU Medical School, it's a commitment uh, in the, the government's four-year plan, and we intend, to, we, we intend to meet that commitment during this mandate. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. And it's very clear. We're, we're seeing a shifting of resources from clinics and doctor's offices to the urgent primary care centres. But the net result, and the minister uh, can say it's not all he wants, but the fact of the matter is we have 200,000 more people in this province without a doctor, without access to a family doctor, than when they formed government. It's closing in on a million people without a doctor because it's just been a shifting of resources around, not an added capacity to the system. We've heard about the struggles around access to education, access to training, access to foreign credentialing, and it's a layering of frustrations to physicians generally that is leading to them also seeking out early retirement and also lawyer workloads. Another example of this frustration is the current physician master agreement, which was ratified in 2019. It's the payment model that is obviously critical for keeping family doctors and is one of the most cited reasons for doctors closing their doors over the last while. But despite all this fact, the agreement expires on Friday. And we have no idea what the status of negotiations are or even what the bargaining mandate is. This is the first time since the 90s that the public sector negotiating mandate has been suppressed. Not surprising, I guess, given that this is the government that's been cited as the most secretive in Canada. So my question to the Finance Minister is one that's quite simple. What is the negotiating mandate for the 2022 Physician Master Agreement so we can stop losing the critical physicians that are in short supply already? Minister of Health. Honourable Speaker, um, the member knows that the signature initiative in the primary care plan, our primary care networks across BC, every primary care network was proposed by local divisions of family practice, including doctors. In other words, there has never been this level of work, working together and consultation as there is now. Does that mean... Well, Honourable Speaker, um, the first surgeon in primary care centre uh, was in Kamloops, and it, it aligned with it, Honourable Speaker, the ability for new doctors to come and practice in primary care in Kamloops. Right? In, in fact, it's one of the most successful of its kind in North America, in Kamloops, Honourable Speaker. And so I'm happy, happy to show the numbers, happy to show the numbers, anytime, anytime. So, Honourable, Honourable Speaker, that work, well, Honourable Speaker, that work, 
the numbers. work on uh, encampments. Happy let's, to provide the numbers. In fact, numbers, let's speaker, hear the, point, if the member stays please. around after question period in this place. I don't want to really that because we all have much business around the place. I'd be happy to provide them to him uh, this morning. Uh, between 11 and 12, it's happy to provide them because the numbers are so good. And I tell you, I'm and honourable speaker, honourable speaker, minister will continue. Minister, you know, you know honourable speaker, urgent primary care centres, and I'm surprised because. Uh, I understood that they were supported by members of the opposition, have been essential in this period of pandemic because the doors of those urgent primary care centers have stayed open, where it's not been virtual care, and they've played an essential role. The minister, the member seems to dismiss a million visits, but a million visits is a lot of visits of people in British Columbia. With respect to issues of collective bargaining, uh, I, I, I don't know if this is new or news to members of the opposition, but collective bargaining should take place at the bargaining table, and it will. Yeah. The bell ends the question period.